Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Tribe with Doug Grotheis, where we seek the truth about the things that matter most through reason and evidence. Recently, I did a series of podcasts on Jesus. I talked about the atoning work of Jesus, Jesus and Buddha, Jesus and Muhammad, the biblical basics about Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And we did a few programs after that, but I'd like to come back to that series now and talk about Jesus as a philosopher. Viewing Jesus that way might surprise some people, but I think a good case can be made for this. I wrote a book some years ago called On Jesus in the Wadsworth Philosopher series, and I was inspired in viewing Jesus this way by several thinkers, including Dallas Willard, J.P. Moreland, and James Sire. So let's think about this. If you'd like more detail on it, try to find a copy of my book on Jesus, which is out of print. Or you can find an essay I wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education back in, I think, about 2003 called What Would Jesus Think? And there's another article online at the Christian Research Journal called Jesus as Apologist and Philosopher. everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So if we're going to ask the question, was Jesus a philosopher, we need to define what a philosopher is. And this is how I put it in my book. I propose that the necessary and sufficient conditions for being a philosopher, whether good or bad, major or minor, employed or unemployed, are a strong and lived out inclination to pursue truth about philosophical matters through the rigorous use of human reasoning and the ability to do so with some intellectual facility. So, was Jesus a philosopher? He was certainly much more than a human philosopher. He was human, but he was also divine. He spoke with divine authority about his own identity as the Messiah, about the future, and so on. However, simply because he was God incarnate and he spoke prophetically does not preclude the possibility that he also used reasoning and had a coherent worldview. Now, some people, such as the atheist Michael Martin, have argued that Jesus positively disparaged rationality, and one of his arguments is that Jesus said that we should become as a child, Matthew 18.3. And Martin takes the very uncharitable view that Jesus meant that we should become ignorant and immature as children, but that wasn't what 
Jesus meant by that. He meant that we should become children because of the things we appreciate about children, such as trust, innocence, and so on. And in fact, when you look at the pattern of Jesus' ministry, as recorded in the four Gospels, we find that he rationally engaged people repeatedly. Yes, he also gave prophetic denunciations. He predicted the future. He spoke as a man of unquestioned authority. But that didn't mean that he somehow excluded rationality from his teaching and preaching. So first of all, what was Jesus' worldview? First, his metaphysics. He believed in personal theism. There was one God who created the world. He said when we pray, we should pray to our Father in heaven. Of course, that means as a devout Jew of his day, he endorsed the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. His view of anthropology was that we are creatures of God. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Uh, we are not one with God. We are not merely dust in the wind, but we are the creatures of a personal God. Jesus also taught a mind body dualism. We see this in Matthew 10, 28, in Luke 23, 43. He believed that we are physical beings and that being a physical being is a gift from God, but that we are not merely physical. We also have a soul or an immaterial substance that can exist apart from the body. And of course, Jesus believed and taught that we were fallen creatures in need of redemption. You see this in Mark 7, 20 through 23, especially where Jesus says that it is out of the heart that evil things come. So Jesus did not say to look within, to find innate goodness or deity and to actualize that but rather, we ultimately needed to look to him for redemption. Jesus believed in the existence of supernatural beings besides God, such as angels and demons and Satan. You see that Jesus dealt with Satan one-on-one. -on -one. Right after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness and was tested by Satan in the wilderness. You see this in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Of course, he was the greatest exorcist of all time. We find that in the Gospels. And we see various cases where Jesus is attended to by angels, and he speaks of his angels sending his angels, which is an indirect claim to deity, by the way, since God is the owner and controller of the angels. Jesus' view of history was that God was the Lord of history and that he would bring about his desired ends through history and at the end of history. What about Jesus' epistemology? Well, Jesus was not some kind of irrational mystic who said, believe in me because I'll give you a spiritual experience. He trusted and relied on and taught about factual evidence. For example, in Matthew 11, 4 through 6, we see that when the followers of John the Baptist came to Jesus, and they said, John the Baptist wants to know if you're the Messiah or not. Jesus gave the evidence of his miracles and of the pattern of his ministry to verify factually that he was the Messiah. And in other places, Jesus claims to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament. So he says that in his own 
character and in his actions, he is factually demonstrating his identity. Jesus believed that non-contradiction was a test for truth. He did not affirm contradictions. He did not say that A and non-A can both be true. In fact, when he's challenged on things like that, he uses logic to escape between the horns of a dilemma. We'll see that in a moment when we look at Matthew 22, 15 through 23. He also believed that knowledge should have effects in our lives. You could call this the existential effect of knowledge. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if you hold to his teaching, then you will have stability and courage through the storms of life. Jesus appealed to both reason and imagination in his teaching. Consider his use of parables with the imagination. Consider some of the vivid figures of speech he used, such as, you are whitewashed tombs. We should be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. This is a case of the blind leading the blind. So Jesus not only had a coherent metaphysic, he had an implicit, at least, theory of knowledge. He did not disparage reason. He used facts to back up his claims. And he also believed the imagination was a source of knowledge. I think we can also say Jesus held to what is called virtue epistemology. That is, the kind of people that we are affects what we can and cannot know. Let me give an example of this for Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Much can be said about this passage, but I want to emphasize the epistemology of it. Let me read that last sentence again. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, that is, evaluate yourself, judge yourself, and then you will be able to see clearly the speck from your brother's eye. So the idea is that we must evaluate ourselves morally before we can evaluate others properly morally. So we need to be honest, self-critical people to make proper moral judgments. This is just one example. Jesus believes that our character affects what we can and cannot know. And if we are not virtuous people, certain kinds of knowledge will elude us and if we are virtuous people, certain types of knowledge will be available to us. Now, Jesus also claims to uniquely know God. We see this in John. He says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, and he speaks so much of his knowledge of God and his oneness with God. So Jesus teaches and preaches and interacts with people from a position of divine knowledge. But only he was in that position. Mere mortals are not in that position. Jesus was as the God-man. 
But Jesus claims to know God, to know the Father, to be filled with the Spirit, and to speak truth. And he says that we need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. So, again, back to that issue of honesty in judgment. What about Jesus' moral philosophy? His sense of right and wrong, good and evil, was calibrated to the kingdom of God. He said that when he first began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he said we need to turn from our evil ways and turn toward the living God, that he himself was revealing the way of God. Jesus had the highest moral standards that you can imagine. He emphasized virtue or personal character. We see that in the Beatitudes, that we should be meek, we should be peacemakers, and so on. But Jesus also emphasized duties, of course, or deontology. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor is yourself, and the second is like it. You shall, well, I already said it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, in terms of moral philosophy, or moral theory, Jesus emphasized virtues and duties, and also that we should bring about as many good works as possible. This is the consequential aspect of ethics. When you look at the parable of the sheep and the goats, you see that people show their ultimate allegiance to God by how they treat the least of these, the good works that they do. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. So in terms of ethical theory, Jesus harmoniously combines the element of virtue ethics, deontology, and a concern for consequences, but never such that you should work for desired consequences apart from a godly character or obedience to divine duty. All right, what about Jesus' use of argument? I've said that he had a coherent worldview, and I've summarized that in terms of metaphysics epistemology and ethics, of course, very briefly. Please see my book for more detail. I have chapters on Jesus' metaphysics, Jesus' epistemology, the ethics of Jesus. Also, I think an important chapter called Jesus' view of women, something we we may come to later. But what about Jesus' use of argument? Could he really argue philosophically? The answer is yes. I have a chapter in my book on Jesus, called Jesus' Use of Argument. And so that I get this right, I'm going to read from my own book, and I'm going to give you two examples of this, both from Matthew chapter 22. Disciples of the Pharisees and several Herodians asked Jesus a controversial political question. The Pharisees, powerful religious leaders of the Jews, were ardent nationalists who opposed the rule that Rome had imposed on the Jews in Palestine. The Herodians, on the other hand, were followers and defenders of the Herods, the Roman rulers who strictly governed Palestine. After some initial flattery about Jesus' integrity, they tried to spring a trap. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Matthew 22, verse 17. Jesus faced a tough dilemma. If he sided with the Pharisees, he might be seen as an insurrectionist and a dangerous element as were the zealots. 
Jews who defended violent revolution against the state. If Jesus affirmed paying taxes, he would be viewed as selling out to a secular and ungodly power instead of honoring Israel's God. He would be denounced as disloyal. This was not a win-win situation. As Matthew tells us, the Pharisees had, quote, laid plans to trap him in their words, unquote, Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Jesus responded by asking for the coin used to pay the tax, a denarius. He asked, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? They replied that it was Caesar's. Jesus uttered the now famous words, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. At this the delegation dispersed in amazement at his answer. So look at Matthew 22, verses 18 through 22. Jesus displays a cool head and a sharp mind. When confronted with a classic dilemma pertaining to what we would call church-state relations, he finds a way logically to escape between the horns of the dilemma. Jesus gives a place to the rule of Caesar under God without making Caesar God. Caesar's portrait on the coin, a bust of Tiberius, had an inscription ascribing deity to the emperor. When he differentiates Caesar from God, he strips Caesar of his supposed deity. Jesus saying, while short and pithy, has inspired many political philosophers to explicate and apply the concept of a limited state in relation to religion and the rest of culture. While not offering a developed political philosophy, no one was asking for that anyway, Jesus shows a deep awareness of the issues involved and responds intelligently under pressure. On other occasions as well, Jesus shows himself to be neither a disloyal Jew nor an insurrectionist. He refers to God, not Caesar, as the Lord of heaven and earth, Matthew 11.25, but does not eliminate temporal authority. At his trial, preceding his execution, Jesus informs Pilate, You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. John 19.11 So Jesus escapes between the horns of a dilemma and shows great sophistication of reasoning in so doing. Let's look at another situation. Immediately after the question about taxation, Matthew records another intellectual encounter. The Sadducees, another influential Jewish group, try to corner Jesus on a question about the afterlife. They, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in life after death, nor in angels or spirits. Although they were theists, and they granted special authority only to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. They remind Jesus of Moses' command that, quote, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him, unquote. This was called Leverite marriage. Then they propose a thought experiment in which the same woman is progressively married to and widowed by seven brothers, none of which sire any children by her. Then the woman dies. Quote, now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Of the seven, since all of them were married to her, unquote, they ask pointedly. Matthew 22, verses 23 through 28. The argument is clever. The Sadducees know that Jesus reveres the law of Moses as they do. 
They also know that Jesus, unlike themselves, teaches that there will be a resurrection of the dead. They think that these two beliefs are logically inconsistent. They cannot both be true. The woman cannot be married to all seven at the resurrection. Mosaic law did not allow polyandry. Nor is there any reason why she should be married to any one out of the seven, thus dishonoring monogamy. Therefore, they figure Jesus must either come against Moses or deny the afterlife, if he is to refrain free from contradiction. They are presenting this as a logical dilemma, either A, Moses' authority, or B, the afterlife, not neither A or B, and not both A and B. As we noted, Carl Jaspers and Humphrey Carpenter claim that Jesus was not concerned about logical consistency, and Michael Martin asserts that Jesus praised uncritical faith over reason and induced belief only through rewards, threats of rewards and punishments. If these charges were correct, one might either expect A, uh, Jesus to dodge the question with a pious and unrelated utterance, or B, to threaten hell for those who dare question his authority, or C, simply assert two logically incompatible propositions with no hesitation or shame. Instead, Jesus forthrightly says that the Sadducees are in error because they have failed to know the Scripture or the power of God. Quote, this is Jesus. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew twenty-two thirty through 32 Jesus' response has an astuteness that may not be obvious. First, he challenged their assumption that the belief in the resurrection meant that one is committed to believing that all of our pre-mortem institutions will be retained in the post-mortem resurrected world. None of the Hebrew Scriptures teaches this, and Jesus did not believe it. Thus, the dilemma dissolves. It is a false dilemma because Jesus states a tertium quid. There is no married state at the resurrection. Second, as part of his response to their logical trap, Jesus compares the resurrected state of men and women to that of angels, thus challenging Sadducees' disbelief in angels. Although the Sadducees did not believe in angels, they knew that their fellow Jews who did believe in angels thought that angels did not marry or procreate. Third, Jesus cites a text from the Sadducees' own esteemed scriptures, Exodus 3.6, where God declares to Moses, from the burning bush, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus could have cited a variety of texts from writings outside the Pentateuch in support of the resurrection, such as the prophets Daniel 12.2 or Job 19.25-27, but instead he deftly argues from their own trusted sources, which he also endorsed. Fourth, Jesus capitalizes on the verb tense of the verse he quotes, God is, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom had already died at the time God uttered this to Moses. He did not cease to be their God at their earthly demise. God did not say, I was their God, past tense. God is the God of the living, which includes even the quote-unquote dead patriarchs. Matthew adds that when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 
unquote, for Jesus had, quote, silenced the Sadducees. Indeed. And if you'd like more illustrations of Jesus' use of argument, please uh, consult my book or the articles that I mentioned at the beginning of the program. So if Jesus was a philosopher and if he reasoned so astutely with his critics, what does that tell us? Well, let me tell you a story. I gave a longer version of this lecture a number of years ago in Canada. And one woman sat through two iterations of the lecture, which surprised me. I gave it and everybody left except one woman. And she sat there for the second iteration of the lecture. And afterwards she said, I don't like what you're saying. Where's the Holy Spirit in all this? You didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit. And I said, was Jesus perfectly filled with the Holy Spirit at all times? She said, yes. I said, well, there's your answer. So Jesus did nothing outside the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But why somehow pit the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, against good reasoning, logic, and evidence? There's no reason to do so. So as we study the life, the life and the teaching of Jesus, we should consider him, yes, God incarnate, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but also think of him as a thinker, as a philosopher, as an apologist. I think more work needs to be done on this. We need to really mine the scriptures to see how Jesus reasoned and to try to be like him, to try to reason well in the power of the Holy Spirit with Jesus as our guide. This has been Doug Grotheis for Truth Tribe. If you'd like to know more about me, you can go to douglasgrotheis.com. I am a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, where I've served for 30 years. We have a, a master's degree in Christian apologetics. You can find out about that at denverseminary.edu. And please tell your friends about our podcast. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.